Chapter 1, we're going to study verses 21 through 27, but I want to read to you verses 18 through 27. I want to follow on our study last Sunday morning of the parable of the sower, which taught us that we want to be good ground hearers and to hear well. This study this morning will take that a little bit further. Not only do we want to hear well, we want to be doers of that word and do well. Let me read to you beginning at verse 18 through the end of the first chapter. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. May the Lord bless the reading of his infallible word. Verse 18 tells us how we're born again. This book was written to men who were born again, written by one of the bluntest. He was the bluntest of all the apostles. This epistle does not waste any time. This epistle is not politically correct. This epistle does not pussyfoot around in describing our sins, faults, errors, and things we ought to be warned against. James is a heavyweight when it comes to an epistle. And if you read the epistle and think about what I just told you, you will agree that there isn't another epistle like it. Even Paul is put in the shade by the way James just comes out swinging from the first verse all the way to the last verse. I mean, there are no five verses at the end of James where he's giving sweet nothings to the churches. <laughs> he just cuts, cuts loose and concludes. And that's the way James is. But we, we want to look at part of it this morning. We want to start with verse 18. These are people that were already born again. And he says that in verse 18, of his own will. And this is what we believe in this church. You're born again by his own will, not by the sinner's will. Amen. It's not by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, John 1.13, that most neglected verse of the New Testament. It's his own will. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. And the word of truth here 
is not the Bible in your hands because that's not how you're born again. The word of truth here, even though it's not capitalized and it doesn't need to be capitalized, is the living word of God. It's not capitalized in Hebrews 4.12, but we know that it's the living word of God. This is the word of truth. Isn't Jesus called the word of life in 1 John 1.1? Doesn't Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? He is the word, that is his name. He is the word of truth, and it is by him we are born again, because the Bible tells us we're born again when Jesus Christ speaks the word, live to every sinner. That's John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. He is going to say, live in the last day of the resurrection, and everybody, every body, every physical body of both the righteous and the wicked are going to come forth by the power of his life-giving voice. That is how we're born again. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. We're his creatures. Being born again is a new creation. We have a new man created in us. My little daughter, there she is, yesterday had to deal with three fellow employees at the restaurant where she was working as they wanted to assault her with questions about our church. And as they were discussing salvation, they, wanted, they covered everything. How do you know a foolish and unlearned question? They ask more than five per hour. If they ask more than five questions per hour, it's a foolish and unlearned question, and you should just leave them alone because they don't want to learn. They're just picking on you and trying to make fun of you. You know, it's hard for me to have her come home and tell me about questions like that because I would like to go answer their questions and then ask a few of my own. It, it arouses my fatherly desire to protect my children. But my poor little daughter had to answer some questions about salvation. And they were trying to listen to her answers, and they said, are you, then are you just saying something supernatural just happens to a person and changes them so that now they love the things of God? Amen. <laughs> Amen. That's what we believe happens. Jesus Christ, the life-giving voice of the Son of God, gives us life. That's exactly what we believe. Now, little daughter, I didn't pick this passage this morning because of what you told me yesterday. But look at that 18th verse. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. It is a new creation when God puts in us a new man. That's all we can say about verse 18, or I'm in serious trouble. We don't want to be in trouble. We want to get into what the purpose of this message is for this morning. But I have to tell you that James is writing to born-again people. You, you can't read this book without knowing that. You need to understand the context of to whom the epistle is addressed. Wherefore, verse 19, if, if God has created us with a new man by his own will, that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures, if God's done that, how should we behave to answer God for what he's done in us? Wherefore, that's a relative pronoun, going to draw a conclusion, introduce us to something we ought to be doing. Wherefore, since we're born again, creatures of God, my beloved brethren, these are not you drunks. He's not down in the brothel. 
He's writing to saints that were scattered abroad. My beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. That is how we look like a creature of God. We're swift to hear. Now children, this is for you. Do you know why you have two ears and one mouth? Because you're to listen twice as much as you talk. Amen. That's why. You know God could have given you one ear right there. He could have given you one ear right there. But He gave you two ears for you to be swift to hear. See, you're, you should be twice as fast to listen as you are to speak because you've got two of these things. How fast can you run with one leg? Not too fast? You have two ears to listen, to listen swiftly. You have one mouth to speak more slowly. And that's what the verse teaches. If you want to look like you're a child of God and a creature of God, born again, we will guard our tongues that want to speak so swiftly. We want to slow them down and we want to pick up on our ears and we want to slow down our wrath. Because a man that is slow to wrath is a great man. The book of Proverbs would tell us that man is a man who can rule his spirit and is great if he can rule the passion of anger. That looks like a man who's born again. Verse 20, because verse 20 wants to tell us, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Now the context is very simple. We are born again to be creatures of God working the righteousness of God. But you can't work the righteousness of God if you speak quickly and listen slowly. We want to listen quickly and speak slowly and be slow to wrath. Those are the first three verses. Now we come to verse 21 where we have another wherefore. He's going to dip in deeper into us doing the righteousness of God. How do we do the righteousness of God and please Him as obedient creatures that He has made? How do we do it? Wherefore, lay apart all, super, all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. I love the word of God. It's challenging. If anybody ever wanted a mental challenge, you've got one in the word of God. And that's why we are told, study to show thyself approved unto God. A, a workman. Oh, you mean it takes work to understand the Bible? Why is it telling us in verse 21 that the word of God that we're to receive with meekness can save our souls when in verse 18 they're already saved? And in verse 19, their beloved brethren must be a different salvation, a different phase of salvation. And that's why we divide salvation into its five phases. And here it is right here. There is a salvation that comes from the Word of God. And it's the salvation that he concludes with in the last two verses of the epistle. My brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. That's what brethren do for each other. We are to be soul winners one with another. That's what the purpose of the New Testament is. There isn't a single sentence, not one verse, in all of the general epistles of the New Testament 
about New Testament saints being soul winners to those outside their assembly. Not one sentence. Now, you can find indirect principles that bear on that in other places, but not a verse of it. Because the main thrust is for us to be helping one another. And that's what the last two verses of the epistle is about. But notice, the salvation from death and the hiding a multitude of sins is when we help a brother in error back into the truth. That's conversion. Conversion is not regeneration. Regeneration is when God gives us new life, when he creates a new man within us. Then we're vitally a child of God, but conversion is when we educate that person to walk in the ways of truth and righteousness and please the Lord, and that's what verse 21 is talking about. Okay, how do we work the righteousness of God? Wherefore, laying apart, we have to lay some things aside. Colossians and Ephesians say, put off the flesh. Put off the works of the flesh. I like these words even better. Laying aside. Aside is to get some distance between you and something. Put it away from you. And we're to lay some things aside. And remember the running the race of Hebrews 12.1? We're to lay aside the weights and the sin which doth so easily beset us? Well, here these sins are going to be described a little bit. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness. What is filthiness? It's moral corruption or pollution. You know, if, if your body's filthy, it's dirty. If your soul is filthy, it's dirty. It's dirty with sin. And so we lay aside all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, as 2 Corinthians 7.1 would say. We lay aside all the pollution of our soul, all the sin that's dirtying up our soul and our spirit. We lay it aside. We get rid of it. We put it over there in the corner and get away from it and turn away from it. We lay it, we lay it apart. Peter's the one that said lay it aside. Here it's we lay it apart. And apart is away from you with some distance between you and it. If it's apart from you, then you're not right close together. You're not next to each other because it is apart. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Naughtiness is being bad. That wasn't hard, was it? If you're, you know, it's a word that we don't use much anymore, but when you're naughty, you're bad. You're wicked. And naughtiness is badness or it's wickedness. And superfluity is a word that means, superfluous means too much, excess, abounding. And so we're to lay aside all this abounding naughtiness that we all have. It's not that we just lay aside naughtiness that's superfluous and keep the naughtiness that's not superfluous. That's not what the verse is teaching. The verse is teaching that all naughtiness is superfluous and we lay it all aside because it's all abounding and we should get rid of it all. This, the sin nature of man is horrible. It's an abounding excess of naughtiness. And so we should lay aside filthiness and all that abounding naughtiness that is in our heart. We want to think the wrong things. We want to say the wrong things. We want to do the wrong things. And that's not how we work the righteousness of God. We work the righteousness of God by laying those things apart. And then it says, receive with meekness the engrafted word. That's what we're here for this morning, to receive the preaching of God's word. When you receive it, that means you reach out and take it. You know, I'm scattering the seed, but you are receiving it by reaching out and taking it, not with your hand, but with your ears. You are listening and grasping and laying hold of what I'm saying, you're receiving it, the Word of God. And you do it with meekness. Meekness means humility, submission. 
It means that when you hear the word of God, you're not going to resist it or fight, it, a fight against it. You're not going to be self-willed. You want to hear the word of God and take it in and humble yourself before it and let it correct you. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. The engrafted word. Now a graft in a tree is when you've got an apple tree and it's a Macintosh apple tree and you don't like Macintosh apples all the time. You want some Jonathan. And if somebody knows that you can't do this, forgive me. But you might want some Jonathan apples once in a while, so you graft a little bit of a Jonathan apple tree into your Macintosh apple tree so that you have a different branch bearing something off of that tree. I've seen trees with multiple kinds of apples on them. But it's grafting something in to something else. That's, what, that's how we use the word graft. But we have engrafted word. Now, we had the word of truth. That's the living word in verse 18. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we have the engrafted word. And you already know what it is by just reading ahead because it's something you hear. So you know it's the scriptures and the gospel that's conveyed by the scriptures. But why is it called the engrafted word? Because when we're born again, which was in verse 18, it is put in our hearts. This is precious. James is comparing to the 12 tribes scattered abroad the difference between preaching under the Old Testament and preaching under the New Testament. Under the Old Testament, it addressed this thing right here. It was a bunch of noise. The laying out of God's word was a, was a message of condemnation. And they couldn't keep it. And so God said, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I'm going to take this new covenant, and I'm not going to write it in tables of stone that they can put in their Ark of the Covenant. I'm going to write it in the fleshy tables of their heart. I will put my laws into their heart and into their mind. Now, when you take something like the law of God and stick it right down into the heart of man in regeneration, that's called the engrafted word. And so James is appealing to the fact that you have something inside you. Receive it as I give it to you. Did, did Paul ever say that? Hebrews 8.10, he said, For I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. I will write my laws in their heart and in their mind. How about Romans chapter 10 and verse 8? where he told the Romans, the, the word of faith that I preach, it's already in you. It is in your heart and in your mouth. It's already there because God put it there. Didn't he write the Thessalonians and say, you don't have any need for any man to teach you how to love one another because God's already taught you how to love one another. Now, love one another. Do you, do I, I don't need to turn you there, do I? Because see, God put the love of others in the heart of the new man that is in every born-again child of God. It comes into activity when you hear the preaching of the gospel, the new man recognizes it as truth and says we need to be doing that, and the new man gets stronger by the lesson of God's word so that we're working the righteousness of God. I can't preach to your old man. If you're sitting here this morning with just an old man, you're not born again, I can't do a single thing for you, and I'm not trying to do anything for you. God has to give you a new man, a new heart, by regenerating you by his own power first. Then I can address you. But that new man I can address because you hear it and you say, yes, that's the truth. Lord, help me do that. This is what verse 21 is teaching us. If we lay aside, lay apart the sins that easily beset us, the filthiness and our naughtiness, 
and receive with meekness a humble reception of God's preaching, it is able to save our souls. And this salvation is to save us from error, save us from further sinning, save us to assurance of our eternal life. Remember, chapter 2 is going to be, if you have faith only, there's no evidence of your salvation yet. It needs to be faith with works, because this book is about working the righteousness of God. This is why the Calvinists don't like James. This is why Martin Luther took it out of his Bible, because he didn't like the book of James. This is why we have this 21st verse right here, which is able to save your souls. The evidence of eternal life is working the righteousness of God. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. A man that's working righteousness shows that he's a child of God. And this saves us from the error. It saves us, saves us from error and sin and saves us to working righteousness, which is what we want to do to look like we are truly the creatures of God. So that we can know that we are the elect of God by bearing fruit in our lives. That's verse 21, which is able to save your souls. See the different phases of salvation? How in the world can he tell them in verse 18 that they're already born again in his creatures and then tell them in verse 21 that they need to do something in order to be saved? Because he is moving on to a, a different and a further phase of salvation. This is the word of God. That is why it says in that verse about studying and being a workman, it says rightly dividing the word of truth. And so we have a division to make here, and we just made it. Instead of going into this verse, here's how Calvinists interpret those four verses I just gave you. Calvinists will say that we're born again by the word of truth in verse 18. The word of truth is the Bible. And if you'll receive it, God will engraft it into you. But see, it doesn't say that in verse 21. If you'll receive it, God will engraft it into you. Uh-uh. It says receive the engrafted word. It's already engrafted. You receive it. God put it in. Now it's your job to work it out. Do I have a verse to prove my point? Yes. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll read them to you. My mind just slipped on getting a perfect quote, but here it is. Philippians 2, 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Brethren, we're in a small minority of professing Christians in the world today. But this is how we study the Bible. God works in us in the work of regeneration, his law, in our hearts and in our minds. We work it out by obeying and doing those things that are worked in, and I activate them and bring them to, into activity by preaching the gospel. Your new man hears it, and your new man says, that is right. Your new man is strengthened. You tell your old man to get lost. You lay apart those things of the old man. You put on the things of the new man, and we go out of here more committed than when we came in to obey the new man. This is the purpose of the preaching of the gospel. I can't make a non-elect, elect, and I can't make a goat a sheep. The gospel was never intended for that. The gospel was for the sake of the elect. That's why Paul said, I endure all things for the elect's sake. He didn't waste any time or effort or prayers or anything else on anyone that wasn't elect. Be total waste of time. That's God's choice, not ours. Ours is to help one another in a church relationship be ready when the Lord Jesus Christ comes. 
And how do we want to be ready? We want to be workers of righteousness. As verse 20 told us. So that was verse 21. I hope that you understand it because now we can move. That's the foundation for what we're about to encounter. It is only a holy and pure life and heart that recognizes and is convicted by the preaching of God's word. Did you see the order of verse 21? You have to come in here with a holy life, wherefore laying apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. we got to get rid of our sins and come in here, sins confessed, holy, wanting to do the will of God. Then we receive with meekness, Lord, show me what you would have me to do. That is meekness. That is humbling yourself before God and saying, whatever you toes you step on, I will accept it. Whatever you show me I ought to be doing, I will. Whatever you show me I ought not to be doing, I won't. Just like we read from Psalm 19 earlier. That's receiving it with meekness. And if you lay aside sin and approach God's word in a holy way, and then you receive it in a humble way, it is able to save your soul. It'll deliver you from the sins that easily beset us. It will perfect you so that you can be a worker of righteousness, manifestly evident to all men, all good men with seeing eyes, that you're a child of God. Paul would say, it's obvious that you're our epistle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said, I don't need letters from a denominational board telling anybody that I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ because you're my epistle. Everywhere I go, men hear about what happened in Corinth and how obedient those Corinthians are. I'm talking about the second epistle. How obedient those Corinthians are, you are my epistle because you show a work of God written in your hearts and I've just served it by bringing you the word of God. Okay, verse 22. But it isn't enough just to receive it by hearing. And so James is going to point out the receiving that I mentioned in verse 21 is not just hearing, it's doing it. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. To come in here, to get dressed up on Sunday morning, to come in here to sing at the top of your lungs and to hold a Bible in your lap and to turn to me when I ask you to turn to different passages and to think that that is working righteousness, and to think that that is the proof of being one of God's elect and one of his children is to deceive yourself. It is to lie to yourself. It is to say, self, you're obviously a child of God. Look where you are this morning. You're in church. James is telling you that's to, that you're lying to yourself. That is not enough. It's not enough to hear it. We have to be doers of it. But be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Do you see how well this fits with last Sunday? Remember, there were the wayside hearers. They heard the word of God. It actually was recognized by their heart as this is true. But then they're, they're thinking about something else. They're not prepared. They're tired. They're dosing. They're distracted by the person in front of them. They want to go to the bathroom. When's the pastor going to quit? What am I going to do this afternoon? And the devil takes it away and they go out of here. Not one bit better for it. Mm -hmm. Do unregenerate people do that? Every time. Do regenerate people do that? Sometimes when they're in sin and being carnally minded. 
That's how they receive the word of God. Then someone faces a little persecution. They, they hear the word and they get excited about it, but they're persecuted a little bit, so they want to quit. That's not a doer of the word. That's a quitter of the word. Then we've got those who get too attracted by the pleasures of this life, and so they don't bear any fruit, and they're just choked out. They're a hearer of the word, but they're not a doer. They're a doer of the world. They're not a doer of the word because they want to do things in the world that are more fun. So the warning is, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. You're lying to yourself if you think you're a child of God, a Christian, a disciple, and a worker of righteousness because you're here this morning. That isn't good enough. We have to be doers. Verse 23. Now he's going to give us a little comparison. A mirror comparison. A makeup mirror. Did you use it? For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. In those two verses, we have a little comparison. James says, hearing the preaching of God's word is like what you do in the morning. When a man gets up, or a woman, and looks in a glass, we call it a mirror now. They call it a glass then. And that glass could be made out of glass, or that glass could be polished metal that reflected like glass or like a mirror. They cared. You can read Isaiah 3 and a thousand years before this was written. They had their glasses. Okay, you get up in the morning and you look in the mirror. You look in the mirror and you're looking at your natural face, the face God gave you, your blue-eyed, brown-eyed, whatever. You're two-eyed. Everyone in here is two-eyed. But you look in that mirror and you look at that face and you see a problems that develop during the night. I do. Everybody's looking at me like, what's wrong with you? I'll bet in the morning you do look different than you do right now when you first roll out of the sack and look in a mirror. Your hair is disheveled. You have sleep dirt in the corner of your eyes. They're kind of messed up eyes because they're still trying to wake up. A zit may have developed overnight in some place that you need to cover. You've got horrible breath. Your teeth are yellow. You've got dirt in your face or whatever else may have happened. You may have been slobbering half the night and it's run down your chin and dried. I mean, I just think, I don't know what you look like in the morning. Hey, if you sleep with, you know, you, you slept with your mouth open all night and your lips are all trapped, chapped, you're messed up. And so you look in that mirror and you say, I got, I got some work to do. And it takes most women some time in there to look presentable when they come out. And it takes men some time in there to get their hair combed so they can go to work and look like a professional rather than an animal. And that's what we do in a mirror. We look in the mirror. But now, what James is saying is, what if a man gets up and he's going to go to work and he's going to have an interview that day? He has an interview that day and he's got to make two sales calls later in the afternoon. He looks in the mirror, his hair's all sticking out, you know, one side sticking straight up and the other side sticking out. And there's sleep dirt all over his eyes, both corners out here and inside corners, and he's a mess. He looks in the mirror and says, that looks horrible. And then he just turns around and walks out of that bathroom and goes to his interview and goes to his two sales calls without doing anything for his face and forgets what he looked like. And he bounces in there and shakes that man's hand and says, yes, I'd like to work for your company. 
And that manager's looking at him like, you idiot. You didn't even comb your hair for me. Now, I hope you're following my analogy. It's not my analogy. You know I don't give any. I'm not creative enough. And I thank the Lord because I'd rather stick right with his word. It's a pity that some of the better sermons that I remember from my childhood, I remember the illustrations and I don't remember the point. Because that's the flesh. It'll grab illustrations, but this is the Lord's. So I like it. There's that man thinking he's going to win himself a job and he hasn't taken care of his face. He straightway, he looks and he sees in the mirror, I'm a mess. And he turns around, he walks out and he totally forgets, totally rejects what the mirror just told him about himself. And he goes to his interview and he's got those big chunks of sand, you know, in the corner of his eyes and he's a mess. He's got a, court, a, a popcorn husk hanging on a tooth that came loose during the night and is plastered in his front tooth. I mean, he's a mess. And he wants a job, and he's going to make a sales call. That is a foolish man. He looked in the mirror. The mirror told him something about himself. But he just ignores it and walks out and tells himself on the inside, you look okay. You're okay. Let's go to that interview. He's deceiving himself. The mirror told the truth. He's saying, that's good enough. I'm good enough. I can still go to the interview. He's lying to himself, and he's believing his own lie. Do you know how horrible self-deception is? You are lying to yourself, you tell the lie, and you believe the lie. That is just horrible. Self-deception is horrible. And that's what it is when we come in and we hear the Word of God. We hear it. It tells us that we have a fault in our lives, and we get up and we go right out of here, and we don't change it. And someday we're going to stand in a great interview and that's before our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to give an account of everything we have done in our bodies. You know what my goal is for your life and for my life? And I will burn out my life for your life if we can all get there this way, that we will all be workers of righteousness when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. That is where we're headed. I have a mirror this morning, and it's called the Word of God, and I hold that mirror up in front of your face at least nine times a week not counting private conversations and correspondence, but to the whole church, I hold that mirror up in front of your face nine times a week to show you blemishes, and you ought to be pinching some of them, covering some of them with base, whitewashing some of them off, combing others out of the way, brushing others out of the way, until you're presentable to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is my job. Amen. I'm nothing, but I'll tell you what, I'm trying. And you don't have to feel sorry for me except that I'm nothing. But if he can make me something for you, I'll be happy with my life. But I have a mirror, and it's called the Word of God. And those two verses right there, 23 and 24, I am not making light of the Word of God. This is God's analogy. It's as dumb and as foolish and as self-deceptive to hear the Word of God and not change your life as a man who looks into a mirror and sees that he's got a number of problems and walks out and goes to an interview anyway without making any changes. It's that foolish. Let me remind you of what we saw in the mirror this past week. Last Sunday morning, I held the mirror up in front of your face. Yeah. It, was a, it was a pretty sharp mirror, I know, and not all of you liked everything I had to say. Well. But I held up a mirror last Sunday morning and it said, don't come and hear God's word without preparing for it. Or you'll be a wayside hearer. 
don't come and hear God's word and not be convicted enough to be able to endure a little persecution and trouble. Right. Don't hear God's word and then go out of here and get too excited about your job or your hobby or some other pleasure and so that it distracts you from bearing fruit in your life. Do you remember that mirror? Yes. Do you remember seeing yourself in that mirror last Sunday morning? Yes. I held that mirror up to you. Now for me to remind you of this is not, is not very weighty. It should be. But when Jesus Christ reminds you, it will be weighty. Mm -hmm. He knows what I preach to you. He tells me what to preach, and he knows what I preach, and he'll be reminding you of what I preached, and me. I held that mirror up about being a better hearer. Some of you said to me, I saw some blemishes, and I want to correct them. I want to do better. I hope you did for this morning. Sunday evening, I held up the mirror. The mirror was, is there any place in your life where you're being presumptuous and you're pushing the Lord by not doing things as well as you could be, should be, reasonably, but you're trusting him to deliver you. You're tempting the Lord your God. And I ran through a whole combination of different examples of how we can tempt the Lord. And I held that mirror up for you to look at and see, am I tempting the Lord anywhere in my life? Mm -hmm. It's a common temptation. There's all sorts of areas in which we tempt the Lord. And I held that mirror up for you all to look. You saw, hopefully, some areas that maybe you're a little too loose and you're not doing what you ought to be doing and you are presuming on the Lord. How about Monday morning? Monday morning, I sent to you Proverbs 29, 21. When I held that mirror up in front of everyone's face, that mirror said, if you are harsh and overbearing in your authority relationships that you have, you are wrong. That verse was, he that delicately bringeth up his servant from his youth shall have him become his son at the length. That was saying that there is a delicate way, a careful way, a prudent way, a tactful way of, of treating employees, which then transfers to all other authority relationships, husbands to wives, parents to children, pastors to people. I held that mirror up. If you're harsh... If you're brash, if you're overbearing, you're not doing it the delicate way that God wants you to do it. Hopefully some of you looked into that mirror and saw some more blemishes. That was Monday morning. We're only one-third of the way through the week. Do I send too much? No. Should we just quit the evening services, cancel the Proverbs, meet on Sunday mornings, I'll go get myself a job and make some money in a bank? And we can just play church with one service a week? He said, I'll be by myself. The mirror, Tuesday morning. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 33. As the churning of milk bringeth forth butter, and the wringing of the nose bringeth forth blood, so the forcing of wrath bringeth forth strife. And so there was a mirror in front of you, and the mirror, the mirror was really sharp on one point on Tuesday morning, it was anger. Do you have a problem with anger? And it was saying, if you push your anger, then you're causing fighting and division. Fighting and division is from hell and it's of the devil. And you're not being a peacemaker like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was all in the mirror on Tuesday morning. Now, how many minutes are there in a day? 1,440. If you were to give the Lord 1%, that's 14 minutes and 40 seconds. If you spent 14 minutes and 40 seconds reading the proverb three times through, then reading the commentary once, and then reading the proverbs two more times through, and asking the Lord to help you put that into practice in your life, it wouldn't take 14 minutes and 40 seconds. 
It'd take about five minutes. There was the mirror on Tuesday morning about anger. Some in here have a problem with anger. There was the warning about anger. It showed every blemish on your face about anger. Wednesday morning, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 31. The warning that if you try to do things your way and not the Lord's way, he'll rub your face in it. You know what some people do to dogs when they're training them not to do it, go on the floor? They rub their noses in it. God will rub your noses in it. Because he expects you to do it his way, and if you don't do it his way, the results are serious. That mirror was held up. Are you doing anything in your life God's way because you don't want to do it his way or because you're lazy to do it his way? That mirror was there. Now what if you didn't even look in the mirror? Then you're not even as smart as this dumb man because you didn't even look in the mirror. You're not even a wayside here because you didn't even hear it. You, you weren't even smart enough to get out of bed and go look in the mirror. You got out of bed in your pajamas and went to the interview. Why didn't you look in the mirror? It only takes a few minutes. It takes me a lot longer to write it. I'll bet I spend more time writing it than all of you combined reading it. <coughs> the mirror is in your face. On Wednesday morning, it was warning you, don't do things your way, do them God's way, or the repercussions are serious because you're going to be filled with your own devices and eat the fruit of your own ways. Mm -hmm. Wednesday night. What did we do here Wednesday night? There was a lot of food. Was the food the mirror? Nope. No. Love. Did we open? Did I did I pull up a mirror Wednesday night? It was about love. Yep. How that God told us to love Him with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength, and to love each other as much as we love ourselves. It was about self-love. It was asking each of you: Are you loving others as much as you love yourself? Did you look in that mirror and see some problems that you're a little uh, infatuated with yourself? Got a little case of puppy love for yourself? Got a little case of deep love for yourself? Did you see that in the mirror on Wednesday night? Well, you went home with that one, and on Thursday morning, there's another one. Proverbs chapter 2 and verse 18. For her house and her paths go down to death about the strange woman. So there was a mirror. It wasn't about anger. It wasn't about the Lord rubbing your nose and you doing it your way. It was about sexual sins fantasizing about anything sexually that God condemns. Are you going anywhere and looking at anything sexually that you shouldn't be? Are you engaged in any relationship with anyone that is not sexually right? There was the mirror of God's word. It's going to take you down to death. That was Thursday morning. Friday morning. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 11. Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary with his correction. And so it was telling you a profound proverb. I told my family last night the most profound proverb I've written on yet, and you would never see it unless you slow down and think about it. I've spoke. I've mentioned this to a couple of you. Proverbs three eleven. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, neither be weary with his correction. What is real wisdom? Real wisdom is the knowledge and understanding of why things happen in the universe and what the right response is to them. That's the most profound definition of wisdom there is. The knowledge and understanding of why things happen and what the human, the, the appropriate human response to them is, it was in that proverb Friday morning. 
because it was about the four reasons why God brings adversity into the lives of Christians and the three reasons that we ought to be thankful for it and not, be, not despise it and not be weary of it, all in that one page. There was the mirror on Friday morning. Do you have some adversity in your life and is it discouraging you to where you're wanting to quit? Are you despising the Lord for not giving you everything that you want when you asked for it? There was the mirror on Friday morning. Yesterday morning, your day off, right? A day off, a day off from the Lord too. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 2. Solomon speaking as a father to his son. My son, I give you good doctrine. Forsake not my law. And so Saturday morning's mirror was, do you love doctrine? What is doctrine? It is sound teaching and instruction that is the final the final truth on any subject or matter. Doctrine, final authority for our lives. Teaching with authority from God. Do you love doctrine? Every father that read that had to be convicted, am I teaching my children as much as I should be? Every pastor that read it had to be convicted, am I teaching my people as much as I should be? Okay, there was the week. Not counting private conversations and private correspondence. Nine times a mirror was held up in front of your face. What did you do with that mirror? Did you look in the mirror? Were you even a hearer or a looker? Then were you a doer? This isn't very deep. It's just very practical. What are we going to be like? Here's the problem. If it can be called a problem, because I think it's a wonderful privilege, we're all going to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's a problem when you stand before him if you have to do it in shame that you forgot to comb your hair, brush your teeth, clean your eyes, and put makeup on your face. Do you understand me? Because in 1 John chapter 3 and 2, it tells us that we can meet him and be ashamed at his coming because we're not ready for him. And we're ready by looking in that mirror, and it's the mirror of God's word. It's not the mirror in your bathroom. It's the mirror of God's word, and it can correct all the things that are wrong with us so that we can stand before him with joy and confidence. That's James 1, 23 through 24. Let's go to verse 25. But whoso, here's a different kind of a man. This is what I want of this whole church, every single one of us. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. Now he's still using the looking because he's just had an analogy, but he's really meaning looking into the word of God and listening to the word of God. Because it says, not looking into a mirror or a glass, but looking into the perfect law of liberty. And the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is a law. It is called a law. And it is the law of liberty because it shows us the liberty that Christ has purchased for us. And the liberty of being delivered from all of those carnal ordinances of the Old Testament, Amen. we have freedom, but it is still a law. And it's a law that's been written in our hearts, so it's a law of liberty because we've been given the power to obey it. It's the law of liberty. So here's what we ought to be. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. It's a good mirror, isn't it? It's a perfect mirror. It doesn't miss a single thing. You don't have to wonder if it's distorting things, maybe. It's perfect representation of what you are. Don't blame the mirror and walk out. Are you, you, have you ever looked in a mirror that's a little distorted? It was a cheap mirror. You know, you got it at Walmart instead of a glass shop. Not, not all, no, oh, I know. I'm going to suffer abuse for that one. Not all mirrors from Walmart are bad. 
But sometimes you'll get a bad mirror when it was cheaply made and it's a little distorted. You know, you'll look at it and say, wow, I'm looking thinner than I thought I was. You get back in the scales and same as always. And you look in the mirror and it's, you know, it's elongated you so that you think you're thinner. You don't want it to go the other way. Bad mirror. The point I'm making right now is look at what the verse says. Whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty. The mirror of God's word never makes a mistake. It is absolutely perfect and infallible and the final authority for every area of our lives. Every single aspect of your life that you can imagine, I can find it in the Word of God. Hold the mirror up in front of your face and then you've got to make a decision. I don't like that blemish. I'm going to get rid of it because someday you'll give an account for it. May the Lord help us to be this guy in verse 25, looking into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein. He doesn't just blow out the door straightway forgetting what manner of man he was. He continues looking, listening, applying, changing, and doing. He continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. There is a blessing in this, brethren. I want that blessing for you. Do you know why I live? For you to have a blessing from the living God. But the only way I can give that to you is to hold up the mirror and you see your imperfections and change them. And it goes for every single one of you. That was what Psalm 19 was. Moreover, by them thy servant is warned, and in the keeping of them there is great reward. The great reward is the blessing right here of looking in the mirror, seeing our imperfections, because that mirror, I'm telling you, the mirror tells us in advance exactly how the Lord will look at us. Do you understand that? You don't have to be surprised at what the Lord's going to ask about when you get to heaven. The mirror already tells you. It's the perfect law of liberty. So I hold it up. You look in it. I want to change. And you go out and you change. You're a doer of the word, not a forgetful hearer. And you keep thinking about, yes, I don't want to tempt the Lord. You know, I've heard all week long the little expression, I don't want to tempt the Lord. That's tempting the Lord. Great! Great! I don't want to be angry. You know, I hope from this morning, the little thing to the children, remember? Two ears, one mouth, that will all be swifter to hear and slower to speak. Maybe some of the children will remember that. We looked into God's word very quickly from verse 20. Verse 19 that told us that in James chapter 1. But here this man is not a forgetful hearer. He continues and he's a doer and he continues doing. And that man is blessed. What kind of blessing does he get? He gets the blessing of Psalm 19. My strength and my redeemer. You will have the strength of God to do what you see in the mirror. Sometimes you look in the mirror and say, can't he ever use a cheaper mirror? You look in the mirror and you say, I've got so much to work on. If you receive it with meekness, and that means total humility before God, Lord, help me, my strength. Lord, my strength. Lord, my redeemer. Because, you know, sometimes we look in that mirror and realize, well, for 40 years I've been doing it the wrong way. Yeah. Do you know what your Redeemer is? He's a Savior strong and mighty who's already forgiven and purged all those away. If you'll humble yourself and repent right now, He paid for all of them legally, and He'll forgive all of them practically if you'll humble yourself. Lord, my strength and my Redeemer, He'll give you the strength for it. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. He is my strength. 
So you look in the mirror and you're blessed with strength. You're blessed with grace. You're blessed with conviction. If you come in with a holy life and you come in wanting to hear the word of God, you're going to have grace in your soul from the Holy Spirit. You're going to rejoice at the preaching. You're going to see it in your life. You're going to be able to recognize your blemishes, blemishes quickly, know what you ought to do. You're going to have the strength to be able to do it. Now, if you come in here tired and your mind's distracted on carnal things, you're not going to get anything from me except a whole lot of resentment that I preach so long and that I'm such a horrible speaker. But if you come in here prepared, God will give you grace. He'll give you conviction. He'll give you strength. He'll give you assurance of your salvation. You will know you're one of his children. There is nothing left. What did you get up and tell us last Sunday night? Did you get up and tell us it's pretty special when the Lord comes to you in power in his presence? How do you have that? A man is blessed in his deed by laying apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, receiving with meekness the engrafted word, continuing in that word and doing it. That man will be blessed in his deed. Every one of us who have been in Charlie's position and have been out of it and back in it and out of it, we know exactly what the cause is. We have let filthiness or superfluity of naughtiness taint our lives, blemish us, we don't receive with meekness the engrafted word. Our minds are distracted. We're not doers of it. We don't continue in it. And our spiritual life loses its force, its vitality, and its power. And we wonder why our souls feel lean. We come back here, and the pastor preaches on James 1, 18 through 27, and we're reminded what the source of all that pleasure, strength, grace, glory is. Because it's the blessedness and it's the reward of keeping the word of God. Didn't it say in the keeping of them there is great reward? Amen. Did it say that in Psalm 19? <laughs> Almost seems like Psalm 19 and James 1 were written by the same person. They were, brethren. They were. Oh, I want, I want all of you in that 25th verse. If I had time and if I could, if I could split my personality and eyeballs, I'd go around and look at each one of you. and I, I, For every single one of you, even your children, that's what I want. For each of you and for me, that we can meet the Lord Jesus Christ, having continued in his word, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. How do I say those words in English with the weight of them? Verse 26, if any man among you seem to be religious. How does a man seem to be religious? He comes to church, he brings a Bible, and he hears the preaching. If any man among you seem to be religious, how does a man seem to be religious? He spouts doctrine, he's willing to pray, and he condemns others for their false doctrine. but he's not a doer. Amen. If any man among you seem to be religious, and now James here doesn't waste any time, he's going to jump on three marks of someone working righteousness, three that we tend to have problems with. First is in verse 26, speech. If any man among you seem to be religious, and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. It is empty, profitless nothing because you know what James is referencing here when you open the perfect law of liberty do you know one subject it does address rather frequently yes. it's this thing right here 
So he says, if any man seems to be religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, now a bridle is that instrument that goes around the, the jaw mouth of a horse that you're able to take the reins and get in great leverage, able to twist its head. Bridleth not his tongue. We want to control that tongue and rule it so that it serves us and it serves the Lord rather than getting loose and saying things that it shouldn't say. If any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. See, this is one of those guys up earlier, verse 22, a hearer of the word only and not a doer, deceiving himself. He seems to be religious. He has a form of godliness, but he denies the power thereof. And the power of the mirror on this subject is that we are to be swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath. The law of kindness should be in our tongues. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. The Bible tells us how we ought to talk. And so our religion is vain. If we come to church, bring a Bible, even stand up and pray, hear the preaching, but we don't control our tongue. This is just one example of lifting up that mirror because that is one subject you can't get very far in the Word of God without the tongue being addressed. You know, this guy here, James, he doesn't speak very highly of it. Remember, sister? Remember when you got all excited about James 3? I remember. Years ago. Because our tongue can get away from us. You know what he calls it? He calls it a world of iniquity. It's a fire set on, it's set on fire of hell in James chapter 3. James tears into the tongue. He says we're able to train all sorts of wild animals, but no man can train his tongue. We can direct huge ships with a small helm, but no man can get control of his tongue. And so there's the mirror of God's Word. How well are you controlling your tongue? Because you know what the Bible says? When we go to our great interview with the Lord Jesus Christ, I do not speak disrespectfully of that great event by meeting Him. It says we shall give an account of every idle word. I talk more than all of you. There's the mirror of God's word in verse 26, the tongue. Let's go to verse 27. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. Do you know what undefiled means? No spots. No dirt. All cleaned up. Pure. You know, what's that soap that they used to sell? That was, 90, was it ivory that they used to come with? 99.9% .9 pure or whatever. Oh, nobody's going to help me. I can't remember those stupid commercials. I'm glad. But anyway, pure, very clean, undefiled, no dirt, not sullied, not messed up at all, pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this. You have looked in the mirror. You've seen and corrected everything. You are ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's just said the tongue. There's three things in the last two verses. First is speech. Second and third are charity and purity. The second thing is charity. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction. <clears throat> Not the fatherless and widows when they're doing pretty well so you won't have to pay very much, but the fatherless and the widows when they're in affliction and you're going to have to do the giving. Charity. This is just an example because the fatherless and the widows are God's favorite categories of showing charity because he is 
the father of the fatherless and the judge of the widows. He takes care of those that can't take care of themselves. But this is just here to illustrate the subject of charity. James doesn't waste time of having to tell you with 18 verses all the different aspects of charity in your life. But this is charity, and this is toward the neediest people that deserve charity. Orphans and widows. To visit them, to go out of your way and visit them, and to help them when they're afflicted and they need you to give because orphans and widows can't give back. But the Lord does, doesn't he? Charity. Speech, charity, you know, charity. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly and all the rest of the descriptions in 1 Corinthians 13. You know, doesn't the, doesn't, don't the epistles of John tell us that if we've got charity in our lives, we are indeed the sons of God. Because see, we've looked into the mirror and it's showing us pure religion and being undefiled before God. We are clean. We are ready to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. Holiness. Holiness. No spots. Do you see he's still running the analogy? No spot. No spot in your life of watching something on television that Jesus Christ wouldn't like. No, no magazines that you read that Jesus Christ wouldn't like. No internet surfing that Jesus Christ wouldn't like. You're unspotted from the world. Modest clothing on all the women at all times. You're unspotted from the world. There it is. Holiness. So how do we show that our religion is pure and undefiled before God? Tongue, speech, charity, love, and holiness. Living a pure life. Those are the three examples James goes after. What was the point this morning? The point was this. You came in here this morning and I held up a mirror. I've shown you some things from this passage about being a doer of the word, right. not a hearer only. You should go out of here committed I and my family need to be better doers of the word. I'm going to hold a mirror up again tonight. It's going to be about the Lord Jesus Christ and how much you love him. You'll get another mirror tomorrow morning if God's merciful to me. And the next day, every time that that proverb lands in your inbox, remember that I told you there are 1,440 minutes in a day, and if you were to give the Lord 1%, that would be 14 minutes and 40 seconds. And it only takes five to do justice to a proverb. And you have plenty of time to do it. If you don't even read it, you're not even being a forgetful hearer. If you read it and don't do anything about it, you're being a forgetful hearer. You're the man going to an interview with his hair standing on end. But if you read it and you say, Lord, help me do this, and you make a change in your life, because of what you read in that proverb, you're a doer of the word. And the purpose of all that writing, and the purpose of these assemblies and the long sermons, is to look in the mirror of God's word, find out where we're lacking, so that when we meet the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul said, I can present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. That's my goal. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word this morning.